So today I've got joining me the great Jeanette Linford. Now, I've known Jeanette a while. I've been on her podcast, which is extremely successful, one of the top 1% in the world, I think, Jeanette, right? Top 1.5%, but we're going to get to right. 1%, Matt. <laughs> You're nearly there. Brave, bold and brilliant, and it really is too. Now, I thought I'd have a, a successful female entrepreneur on, and Jeanette is exactly that in the corporate world. So rather than me doing a big intro, I'm going to get you to get Jeanette to introduce herself and where she's come from, um, from a big level, from running literally businesses with half a billion turnover, many countries of the world. She's very well traveled, to say the least. Actually, she, for a friend of us or for a client, she organized my last holiday. And um, in, in times like this, there's so much I think we can all learn from Jeanette in the property world. The, um, the problems with inflation and interest rates going up. She's been there, done it, and she's mixing with all the right people who are a huge level of success and can give us a little bit of an insight on what she thinks is going to happen in the next five to 10 years, where you should invest your money, and what's going to happen with the travel industry, which is kind of a strange one. So I just recently came on a holiday, and it, it was a bit of a struggle to get out there and get back. It's not back to normal like it should be. And the summer holidays are approaching soon. It'd be interesting to see how that's going to approach. So, Jeanette, can we go back to your background? Because I know you're one of many sisters and you're kind of the odd one out with uh, this crazy ambition and drive. So uh, how did it all start with you right from the beginning? Yeah, oh, listen, Matt, but first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm really, um, really delighted to be on your amazing new podcast. That's great. Um, so, yeah, so I grew up in Manchester, you know, from a very working class family, um, but a family full of love. And, you know, mum and dad were fantastic. And I was the youngest of three daughters. So my dad used to call us the knicker brigade when we were growing up. So you can imagine he was surrounded by bloody women. Um, but, you know, so I had a very happy childhood. Um, you know, we didn't want for anything, but we weren't particularly affluent at all. Um, my dad was a plumber, mum was a secretary. So it's just a very normal, happy family life, really, growing up in Manchester. Um, and I guess I always knew that I was a bit of the black sheep. You know, I, I was sort of had this drive and ambition to, to explore the world, I suppose, and to actually make something of myself. So, you know, my sisters, they all stayed local in Manchester and got married quite young and had their kids, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, it's not about being better or worse, just different, really. So I went off to university, the first one in the family, the only one in the family at the time to go to uni. So I studied economics at Leeds, um, came away with the first, which was great. Um, and then I, I graduated in 93. So I'm showing my age now. Um, and it was a recession, massive recession in 93. And I was applying for hundreds of jobs, Matt, hundreds. And I wasn't getting anywhere. I even got rejected by Rugby Cement. <laughs> even they didn't want me. Um, but essentially, I ended up getting a first proper job as a government economist. So I moved to London um, and I was working in Whitehall for a couple of years. And then I jumped into the travel industry. Um, and that's kind of been my passion, really, for the last, well, for a big chunk of my career. And I worked my way up from the bottom to ultimately becoming the CEO of the travel division for Saga. Um, and before that, I was the managing director of the emerging markets for TUI. So I, I bought and ran businesses in China, India, Brazil, Russia, Ukraine for TUI. Uh, so awful to see what's going on there right now over there. And then about three years ago, I jumped out, essentially, to become an entrepreneur. So I've now got three businesses, 
One is property investing. The second one is my mentoring business where I work intensely one-to-one with either senior execs or business leaders to help them scale up. And then the third business I have is my advisory business. So I will go into um, organizations and help review their strategy, their business plan, how they want to grow, um, and have quite a, a range of clients, both in the travel space, but also financial services. I've done quite a lot with the Nationwide Building Society, etc. So yeah, so I guess in a nutshell, I'm a working class girl um, that's kind of worked her way up from, from scratch, from nothing, um, to becoming that corporate CEO, but now an entrepreneur. So that's me in a nutshell, Matt, really. Well, I can tell you've done lots of podcast interviews, Jeanette, because you've like answered about 20 of my questions there in... <laughs> In a few minutes. Great intro. So let's just jump right into the controversy that's around um, the holidays and the situation at the moment, because you've seen a recession before. I was fairly young back then. So I do remember my parents struggling to pay the mortgage. I think it was like 1989 to 92, 93, something like that. And I was having to relocate, downsize the house houses and things. Now, there's all this big talk about us entering the session, recession now. And I do remember, too, holidays were on, like, payment plans, if I remember rightly, back then. Pretty mm-hmm. sure. And so what do you feel is going to happen currently? So we've just been on holiday. We've just come back. It went well. with chaos at the airports. One of the particular companies you mentioned there that you work for were in a bit of bother at the time with having to let people go go home and, and cancel holidays. They just couldn't seem to to cope with it. So in the last recession, does that reflect what's going on now? Or is this completely uncharted territory from what you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the circumstances are very different, um, you know, because we've just come out of a global pandemic, right? Um, and, and to a certain extent, still feeling the impacts of that. So the travel industry, I would say, has been the industry that was the hit the hardest through that entire period. Um, because, of course, we had all the change in regulations, you know, the amber, red, green list and all of the, you know, the different kind of restrictions and, and from a health point of view. So you can imagine the absolute bottom fell out the market from a travel point of view. Um, and, you know, you've pretty much had two years with zero income. But at the same time, most travel businesses have still had to deal with customers, changing bookings, you know, still actually being, you know, it's not a case of they could take all of the overhead out of the business and not need people. So it's been a really difficult time for the industry. And it's very unfortunate that now we should be having like the best summer ever. But what is happening in reality is that, you know, because the industry got no dedicated support, and I don't want to get into a big political discussion about it, but there was no dedicated support. So therefore, businesses had to, you know, get rid of a certain amount of overhead, which normally relates to people. So then all of a sudden, when, you know, literally overnight, it's like, come on, everyone can travel again. It's in, it's almost impossible as a travel business or an airline or an airport to ramp up and get the staff to be able to service, you know, those flights and those customers. Plus, we've also got on the back of Brexit around about 20% of the, the typical person that would do those type of jobs and is not available. They're not in the market. So you've got 20% less people. You've got people that have left the industry um, and aren't coming back. And yet you've got this immediate you know, ramp up during the busiest time of the year. 
So, you know, it's, it's a really difficult scenario. From a cons- consumer point of view, if you've had a holiday cancelled or you've been at the airport and, you, you know, your flight's not departed, of course, that's a terrible situation. I mean, there's no doubt about it. However, you know, it's not it's it's complex. You know, it's not so straightforward. Um, you know, and I think I was I was with um, EasyJet the other week, actually. And I think they've had quite a lot of coverage around. I think they had 60 flights in a day that we had they had to cancel. But they operate over three and a half thousand flights a day. So, of course, 60 flights is still a lot of flights. But in the context of the whole operation, as a percentage, it's, you know, but the press don't report that, do they? They just report the headline messages. And, of course, it's not to underplay the situation with those customers that have been affected at all. But, I mean, it will come, it will gradually get back. You know, they're actually reducing capacity so that they can service um, the guests. But people want to get away. You know, we've had two years of being um, unable to travel. So there's an appetite to travel. But there's a lot going on as well around inflation, fuel cost, all of which pent up demand, capacity reductions, all of which is kind of colliding at the same time, Matt. So, you know, there's a lot of complexity going on, but it's it will get easier. Um, but people just really have to, I suppose, keep themselves in contact with their travel provider, you know, and, and actually have the confidence to travel, but appreciate that there are some of these operational complexities to get to the airport early, things like that, that you can make it a little bit easier for yourself. But yeah, it's tough. That's good advice. That, that brings me on to the next thing. So we saw a big boom in, which I, which I never thought would be imaginable, the staycation of people finding beauty spots of the UK, realising they can have a great holiday here. They don't have to be off in the sun and save a lot of money. And of course, that had a reflection on the prices for just renting a lodge. You could look at two to three thousand a week in Cornwall if you can get one. Mm. So the staycation, so I've got some friends who've, who've made literally millions over the last few years from the staycation boom so is that here to stay Jeanette or do you think that's gonna die off because we're facing I don't, don't want to make this like time with like I want to try and keep this evergreen but we are facing the summer holidays I think it's going to be complete carnage in terms of getting out of the country personally judging by just experiencing what I experienced at a half term trying to get away with my family the six-week holiday break where everyone's moved their holidays back and back and back, the lack of staff. And we was at a resort and the simple problems they had was simply because we were in Crete, in Greece, Greek island. They were running at 150 staff short of what they normally got. And they couldn't, they couldn't get any staff, no matter what they do, they just can't get staff. Plus they were miss, missing the Russian business, which is huge to them, having a knock on effect. So this year alone, so we're talking about 2022, I guess staycation is going to be massive, but is it going to be here to stay? Or are you? This Airbnb thing has just come out of nowhere, hasn't it? It's massive. Like when I go to London now, you try and think, well, what's the point spending four or five hundred pounds a night in a hotel when I can have a, a nice apartment with three or four bedrooms with the family up there with me? What's, what's your predictions on that? Where's that going to go? Is that here to stay? Is it going to fade away? Get regulated? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the domestic domestic travel has definitely had a real boom, as you say, because people have all shifted to domestic holidays. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think that at least the next couple of years, they're still going to be increasing. And of course, you know, if there's a lack of supply, then that means the prices go up, right? So, if you're actually looking to get a you know a cottage or something down in Mumbles, where I am, um, or you know down in Devon or Cornwall, you're going to see an increase in prices for sure. I would say. 
Um, but I think the reality is, Matt, that, that people want experiences, whether that's overseas or whether it's domestically. And what I'm seeing um, a lot of is intergenerational travel. So, you know, if you think about grandparents, you know, mum, dad, kids, actually being able to get accommodation where you can sort of stay together, maybe in one property, um, you know, domestically, that's probably a lot easier to do that than, than necessarily going overseas. So I think there, that, that will continue in terms of a trend, intergenerational family travel, which plays very strongly for domestic um, I think we will see a natural sort of a little bit of a slowdown when we're getting into 2024, but more of a leveling out. But I think domestic travel is still here to stay. And if anything, actually, the last couple of years, people have realised that there's some beautiful places in the UK to go to. It doesn't necessarily replace their main family holiday overseas, but it could be in addition to. Um, so I still see that there'll be growth in that service accommodation area. Um, you mentioned Airbnb, actually. And I mean, Airbnb, uh, you know, is, has been a huge success. I mean, a disruptor in the travel industry, for sure, and is now very much mainstream. Um, but I think we'll start to see more regulation coming in for service accommodation. And, you know, and, and in our property business, as you know, Matt, you know, we have we're actually investing in luxury uh, serviced accommodation business ourselves down here in Mumbles um, on the edge of the Gower in South Wales. So, you know, I think with, there will be more regulation come in because, you know, my background in the travel industry, if you're a hotel operating, you know, that what you have to comply with in terms of health and safety, balcony heights, smoke detectors, markings around the pool, I mean, you name it, it's very extensive, whereas service accommodation, there's none of that actually so i think that will change we had that with hmos houses in multiple applications in the early 2000s we could do what we want and then suddenly we got slammed with fire eggs if it's more than two floors and you've got a, a license every five years and they're inspected yeah it's gonna have to come Jeanette, isn't it because at the moment i mean is there fire eggs for airbnb or anything like that is there nothing at all Nothing really. I mean, I, I obviously, as a as a as a landlord, you know, if you're or if some people are just renting out a room in their house, you've got to remember Airbnb started, you know, people renting their sofa. That's that's where the business started. So it's moved on significantly from there. But you know, I'm not saying that that, that there aren't good providers of service accommodation. There absolutely are. Um, and you know, you should be doing everything correctly in terms of fire and, and safety, etc. But it's it's not particularly enforced. And I think that's the difference. So, you know, it it will it might even unfortunately take some form of, you know, fatality or an unfortunate situation to happen that kind of raises the profile of it before there is actual change and more regulation. But um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I just think as, as a property investor, you should you need to do things in the right way anyway. Um, so, but I think for a lot of people, it might take some people out of the market. And of course, if you own service accommodation in your own name, um, you can still offset the interest in terms of a, a tax point of view, which obviously has changed for buy to let. So that's why a lot of landlords now are getting out of buy to lets if they own them in their own names or buying them under, under a limited company. So it will be interesting to see what happens from a tax point of view as well, Matt, to be honest. So let's go back to the property side, because I know you're you are a big fan of property, so am I. Does it still work, Jeanette, doing the two up, two down standard buy to let first investment property? Does that model still work in your eyes? Would you still advise 
your clients when you mentor them to to start off with a two up two down terraced house with maybe 150 200 pound you know rep, profit between the mortgage interest only mortgage and the rent and then obviously we've got the taxation issue there which you can not get around you can legally do it for a company can you at the moment unless that changes so what, what would you say to someone who's looking to invest because for me property is the number one we'll get on to service accommodation again in a second because i think what the way you're doing it is you're preparing yourself for the regulations you're going luxury so if it hits you you're not going to be bothered because you're already there so i imagine yeah. you'll have all the fire doors in place and everything imaginable so if you're advising someone now who's wants to invest because there's there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there very cash rich at the minute had a lot of support in covid unlike the travel sector and are experiencing this massive boom where would they start where where do you feel the property market is going because at the minute you've seen all the emails going out from all the advisors a lot of our mutual friends as well must i add about the crashes coming the recession the correction or the depression what's your honest thoughts on it yeah, I mean, I think anyone that wants to get into property for the first time, I would always get them to, to really think about what is it they're trying to achieve, because that's really where you need to start. And then, depending what that is, the strategy or the approach or what you actually invest in should really fit with what you're trying to achieve. So if the objective is to replace your income very fast and to have a high cash flowing strategy, then you're probably not going to go down the buy to let route. You might go down more of a serviced accommodation route because that, that's a higher cash flowing strategy. If what you want to achieve, for example, is, you know, you kind of just want to have something that's, that's, that's less volatile, doesn't involve so much time and effort. Once it's set up, it's kind of there, it ticks over, you've got the equity growth over time. You're not looking to really, you know, replace a big chunk of cash in one go. Then buy-to-lets can work quite nicely. So I think it has to come back to what are you trying to achieve and what's your personal situation. Um, I mean, we have buy-to-lets, you know, in our in our portfolio. Um, we own, we've got properties in our own names. We've got properties in the company as well. Uh, and I, I would say if you're going to go into buy-to-lets, do it under a limited company because you can offset the the interest cost. Um, so that's important. But really, it depends. I mean, the prices in the market have been absolutely crackers. You know, I mean, even in Manchester, where we've got quite a few of our buy-to-lets, you know, I mean, the prices are just ridiculous. In the last couple of years, we thought there'd be a drop and there hasn't been a drop. So I guess the numbers, the, the days of managing to get all your money out of a buy-to-let deal are fewer and far between, I would say. Um, but it still is quite a good strategy to cut your teeth on as well, because it's lower investment risk. You can learn a lot. You're not necessarily going to keep you in Gucci handbags for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it can get you going in a relatively low, lower risk way than doing something bigger that's that's riskier. Um, but, yeah, I think it's hard to get those amazing deals that you used to get years ago, you know, where you could buy a house for 20 grand. And, you know, that, that's long gone, in my opinion. And a no money down strategy. Do you think they work anymore? Mortgage companies just don't like them anymore, do they? they I think was, they throw them out. Most of my properties I bought with no money down. Actually, I would get cash back on a day of completion with some of them, get paid for buying the house. But I don't see... I mean, you'd have to be very technical on that, but I don't see that's as easy as it was in the early 2000s 
and, and towards, yeah. the, towards the end there. So I think for my strategy now, I just go for blocks of flats where I own the freehold and um, service accommodation side of things. Because for me, income combined with capital, you just can't, can't really go wrong. And the, the interest part, I think there is a way around, Jeanette, isn't there? You, you can still own a personal name, but have a trustee back to a company, can you? And legally offset the tax. I believe so, but God, I wouldn't want to give it. Would I give advice on him yeah, that? Yeah, financial advice on I that mean, one. But you make a very, a very valid point actually, because having a really good tax accountant that understands is critical. I mean, it's critical anyway, but not all accountants are the same for sure. And you know, obviously, we we have to do everything above board, everything legally, and no one's talking about doing anything dodgy here. But there are ways that you can set yourself up for to optimize your tax position in line with your overall personal scenario, etc. So, I mean, my advice to anyone would be, you know, do your due diligence if you're changing accountants and, and get someone that really understands their stuff that's, you know, a referral. I mean, our accountant, um, we actually have a gentleman, I don't mind giving him a shout out, is Chris Wilkins. And he was recommended to us by Mark Homer. He's incredible. He really is. And he's, he's, he's excellent. So it doesn't have to be him. But do your due diligence. Make sure you get people on your team that are the experts in their field. And if you end up paying a bit more for their services, then you're paying for quality and it will save you absolutely thousands and thousands overall anyway. So, yeah, I think that's a key part, really, where anyone getting into property or business, actually. How do you feel about HMOs? Because I see a, <laughs> We went for a cycle with these where I, I had 86 rooms and in from, two, well, the last recession, actually, we couldn't let them fast enough. And then by about 2014, I started making them family homes again. Uh, we still have the HMOs, some HMOs now, but we're starting to see the demand again now. And literally, my, my agents say, if I give them 50 more rooms tomorrow, they'll be let within an hour. The demand is, is unbelievable. But they are high maintenance, high turnover on, on especially the energy costs. I know you can have all these gadgets where you can control the heating and stuff and things like that, but they are costly to run. But have you dipped your toe in that arena, Jeanette? No, we did have a look at it, Matt, to be honest. We, we, at one point, we were thinking we were going to go down that route. And that actually what we've ended up doing is, is deciding to go for service accommodation because that brings together our expertise in property and also travel, right? So it's a perfect strategy for us um, doing that. But yeah, I mean, I, I, we, I did, we did look at it. I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting area, isn't it? Because if you think about, you know, someone wanting to maybe leave, leave home, you know, don't want to live with their parents anymore. It's quite it's difficult these days for young people to, to get a foot on the ladder, isn't it? And, yeah. and but you don't necessarily want to be in a shared house like, you know, bunking in with your mates. So I guess HMO is it, it's sort of quite a cost effective way of having that independence and living on your own in your own room. And most of them now, you know, very often are on suite and are actually done to a good That's standard. Yeah, so so I think I think actually I can see the demand continuing, but I think what we'll start to see, Matt, is that maybe some of the the lower quality HMOs that maybe was where the market was, you know, ten years ago, you know, needing to up their game. 
to actually compete with with the you know people that are coming in doing it now because they've raised the bar haven't they in terms of what, what's acceptable so i think we'll start to see that should help the overall sector actually and um, just in terms of quality and and getting rid of the it's not not got the best reputation from many years ago hmos whereas now i think the world is, is quite different but it's still a bit of that baggage of, of reputation that's it type thing isn't it yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and it's so different from that now, isn't it? But but that's still a little bit of a, of, of a legacy perception that I think just needs to be kind of thrown away. But it will it will only happen if you get if you up the quality of the, the lower end of the market. So I still think it's a great strategy. As you say, you know, it's higher cash flowing, um, a bit more more time consuming. Um, but you can, of course, get people to manage it for you, can't you? You know, yeah, you get, agents don't like it, but if you get a good agent who's willing to take it on, and with me, I, we went in luxury right from the start, and they had Sky TV, broadband, and cleaners twice a week, leather sofas, TV in every room. But now, yeah, now they would expect on suites. I've got a friend who does that, does extremely well, unbelievable. You never believe it's the HMO from the outside, and it's um, the game's really improved on that one. So interest rates, you know, what's your predictions on that? Are we going to see, is it, for me, I, I, I look at the country as county by county. I'm in Devon currently, and I don't think we're going to be too affected, Devon and Cornwall, because the most clicked on area in right move, the property search places for people to live, because now they've learned they can work from home. Londoners can buy, if they have a million pound flat up there, or two million pound flat, which is tiny, you're lucky to get a two bed, two bed flat in London for that, of a decent standard. You could have a mansion down here for that if you can find a house that's worth two million that is you're in a similar position where you are actually in in wales there what's your feeling on is there going to be a house pricing crash and are you looking at selling properties or are you going to hold it through yeah so well i think interest rates are going to are going to go up i mean we've got a big problem with inflation haven't we and all of the indication is that we're going to be heading into a recession so you know the, the if you think about the macroeconomic tools available to, to government, you know, interest rates is the main way, the main tool that can be used to control inflation. So I think I, I think we're going to see interest rates increase. Um, that actually doesn't really concern me because, you know, I remember back in the 80s and 90s when, in, in, when interest rates were 12, 15 percent, you know, they're still relatively low. Actually, if you think about it, still you still have access to capital at a pretty low level of cost of borrowing still. But um, obviously, a lot of people have been used to having paying their mortgage at a certain level. Interest rates, I think, will go up. I think we will head into a recession. Um, and I think what we'll see is, you know, your average person will will fail the pinch. You know, we've got cost of fuel, you know, food going up. We've got, you know, if you look at even, um, you know, we're nearly at two pound a litre for, for diesel, you know, and petrol. I mean, to fill the car, it's as an average car is over 100 pound now, you know, mm -hmm. and inflation last month, 9.1%. Um, so, you know, and, and the actual forecast is that in the next couple of months, it's going to be a double digit. It's going to be 11%. So, you know, there's a lot of um, pressure points coming uh, that's going to impact people. It is for sure. Um, so, I, you know, unfortunately, I think what that will mean is some people will be will need to sell a property. Maybe they will have to, to kind of come out of a, being a homeowner and, and, and going into rental. So I think we will see a slowing 
of prices. I don't know if we'll have a massive big crash, to be honest, Matt, but I think we'll definitely see a cooling down. We're not going to be seeing the big increases. And I can see it here, even in Mumbles, even in just probably the last four weeks or so, you know, properties are now starting to have to reduce the prices ever so slightly, whereas before you weren't seeing that at all. Um, so I think there'll be more stock coming on the market. I think prices will come down. As to whether there'll be a massive crash, like in 2007, 2008, I'm not so sure. But I think it's going to be a better environment if you are um, acquisitive and you want to buy property. It's probably going to be quite a good time. Um, and interest rates, when you're looking at that, you just have to bake it into your numbers. You know, it, it, you just have to assume that it's going to be at a certain level. Um, and then, it, you know, you can you can kind of then look at the deal and say, do the numbers work or do they not work? Um, so, yeah, yeah so I, I think it's going to be an interesting sort of next 12 to 18 months. But um, there's a lot there's a lot of um, forces happening which are global and are not just UK related. And that's the challenge, because how do you control, you know, the war in Ukraine and the impact on oil supply? You can't control that as a UK government. You, you know, you have to respond, but you can't control it. So it's quite different. Whereas the crash in 2007 was really down to subprime lending in the US that then came across the Atlantic, wasn't it? It's a different issues, different, yeah. different scenario. Yeah, you can't worry about things you can't control. And that's one thing we've got no control over. Like you said, you just got to address your situation and make the deal work and then go back to the person who's selling and and make, make it, I mean, that's what might bring the properties down. And you're right, there's a lack of stock out there, isn't there? We're constantly looking for investments, but there's very few and far between. And if you want to be solidly proof, then you've got to go income. That's the only way you can you can push yourself through that. So I'm going to be a bit selfish and ask you a question. Well, I've got you here, Jeanette. So we've got this big house I'm in now in Devon. So we've renovated it. So it's six double bedrooms. So we have the north coast that way, south coast of Devon that way. London, two hours on the train. And I want to make this service accommodation. So what standard do I take it to? Do I put a cinema in? We've got a living room. We've got a massive extra room, which we're calling a, a cinema room. but might not end up there. We've got incredible views all over the country, like hot tubs and stuff like that. We've got a land. There's enough land for them to, to want, but not be too much to maintain. So they've got all the beaches around them and so on. So I think it's in a good position and because we want to live abroad. And because I could, I could pretty much do whatever I do abroad now, flying for my events. I mean, you all, you, I can't keep track of you. You're all over the place as well. So, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to do service accommodation right, like you are now? So, basically, tell me all your secrets so I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think given where you're, you're in a, a great spot, and a lot of what you just talked about there is is not dissimilar to to the location that we're in here in terms of place of natural beauty, great beaches. So it's the perfect spot, isn't it, for actually people wanting you're, to have you're a very... You're opposite me. If I look out my window, we're just over the hill. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We'll have to get the yacht out, uh, Matt, and, you know, meet, meet in the middle somewhere. But, um, yeah, so I think you're in a really great location. So that, that's a massive tick, isn't it, it's straight away. Um, I would, I mean, this is originally your home, right? But obviously, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to move. So you, maybe you become less attached to it anyway. But I would say, you know, don't scrimp on the finish. I would go for the luxury end of the market because, you know, one, it sets you apart from the competition. 
Two, you're going to be able to charge a premium. There's a lack of stock anyway. So, and the other thing I would say with the property of the size that you've got, six double bedrooms, there aren't that many of them. So, you know, if, if there's a special occasion or, like I said, multi-generational families, you'll probably find if you, if you do a search um, for that type of accommodation locally to you, there'll probably be hardly anything that comes up. So, again, you know, supply and demand, that's going to allow you to really charge a premium. So I would go for a really nice, a really, you know, luxury finish. You know, you want the hot tubs and all of that quality bedding, as you would expect if you were staying in a five-star hotel. You know, that's, that's what you need. But also the other thing that we're actually looking at is, you know, being able to, you know, get, get the chef to come in and cook, for, cook for, for the family and to do the cocktail parties and to, to have the, you know, the, um, the spa treatments actually delivered in the property. So you make Good it idea. a whole experience. Stealing that idea. So, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's a brilliant That's what idea. I would do. That's what now, I would do, Matt. So I've got this other big room. We're gonna put, we were going to put a gym in there. But I'm better off. Do you think I'm better off putting a big snooker table, and make it a games room? Um, do people yeah, really, maybe. Do you see service accommodation with gyms in it? Or who goes on holiday to train? I know people like us do, but we're, we're a bit strange. But uh, if you if you go on a holiday, so we've got this huge room we built to have a gym. But now we're actually not going to live here. And you're right, it's a, it's our home, but it'd be like a backup home to return to. Should we not like it wherever we're going to go? So. But for somebody going on holiday, they're going to prefer a games room, I think, over a gym, aren't they? Fully equipped gym. I would have thought. I would have thought you could make it sort of a whole entertainment area, couldn't you? Depending on the size of it, yeah. so you could do it so that you know, if it's if it's like cinema night, you know, with popcorn and all the rest of it, they've got that. But they've got like you know, you've got you've got the games and everything. Because also, don't forget, families want quality time together. They want to do fun stuff together, don't they? So if you've got a room like that, or oh, the kids want to just kind of hang out and have it as, as a bit of a den, um, you know, so I, I would go down that route. I mean, depending on the size of the property, you could always put like, you know, a little gym in the garden or something, couldn't you, if you really wanted to. Um, but you're right, in terms of actually being used by more people, it's going to have a broader appeal if you do that with it, I would say. Especially when in England, we mostly get wet weather. And um, that's the other thing with service accommodation, too. A lot of the time, they don't spend a lot of time in it, do they? Because they want to be out and about, exploring the beaches and going on walks and visit the entertainment areas. But, uh, yeah, OK, I took note of that. I like the chef idea. I think that's fantastic. And the spa treatments come into the house and all the other things you can offer. That's really, really important. So yeah. let's talk about um, social media now, because I think that's the, the other thing which you really smash out on the park on Jeanette. Cause I first saw you on clubhouse and I, I gotta be honest, you're advising people, keeping them positive about the travel industry. And no one ever thought it was going to come back. And you're there very positive when you at the time it was going to happen and so on. So if you're starting out business now and you want to be an entrepreneur, break away from your job, I think the travel sector is probably a damn good thing to get into, to be honest with you. If you, if you're like the next two E you're going to make it because the demand is there. And if you get it right. So if you're, if you're mentoring somebody now who wanted to get, say, into the travel sector, what, what would you suggest them to do? What social media platforms would you favor to get them a following quicker and so on? Because Clubhouse, I pulled away from a little bit. So I just felt that it was you know a bit of a distraction. It was great for the lockdown. So we made a lot of connections between us all. But for me, number one is still Facebook, without a doubt. 
But what do you find? What works best for you for for what you do? And for certain um, accommodation, where do you think that's going to go? Where are people going to search for that in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think I think for, well, there's quite a lot a lot in there, Matt. So let me just kind of break it down a little bit. So I think in terms of anyone that wants to maybe leave their job and become an entrepreneur and, and put themselves out, social media is essential. So regardless of travel, I'll I'll, I'll ask, answer the travel part in a minute. But I think you know I used to be very cynical about social media. I used to think it was for losers that should really go and get a get a proper life and actually have a conversation with people in person so I was very negative and also I was in a corporate job where I was you know I would be presenting the annual results to the analysts in the city as a FTSE 100 business so I couldn't you know I was restricted with what I could say because it could affect the share price right but when I came out um I started I'm working with Rob as well you know Rob Moore being our mentor I started to see the power of social media um, and I don't have anywhere near as big a following as you do, Matt. But certainly I think to be authentic, to put yourself out to the world, adding value, you know, has got to be the first starting point. Because one, you know, you're helping people Two, people get to know and like and trust you and then they'll be more open to doing business with you, whatever it is. So I, I think putting yourself out on social media is absolutely right, but you can't do everything. So if you're starting out, you know, choose where you think your tribe is hanging out and maybe start with one platform, but be consistent. You know, if you can only post once or twice a week, that's fine, but post once or twice a week um, and, and then build up from there, you know, to start doing maybe some videos and then some lives and et cetera. So I think social media is incredibly powerful. So definitely put yourself out there as an entrepreneur. I think in terms of travel, um, you know, if someone wants to get into the travel industry, it depends in what capacity. Because, you know, if you want to be a travel advisor, for example, well, then social media and probably Facebook and Instagram is going to be the platform where you can actually reach people, showing inspiring content, contact me to book your holiday. So those platforms can be great. If you want to go in as a business owner, where you might want to buy a travel business or start a business, then you're probably going to focus more on LinkedIn, you know, as being as being the sort of where your investors maybe are hanging out. So I think it depends what you want to do. Um, I'm passionate about the travel industry. You know, it will come back. It's had an absolute kick in for sure. But you've got to remember that travel and tourism accounts for 10 percent of global GDP. It's huge. It is huge sector. Um, so longer term, I, I think it is a good bet. Um, now could be a good time to buy a business as well, because the value of a travel business is going to be significantly lower now than it would have been three years ago. So I've done a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the years. In fact, I was working on two deals pre well, three deals pre-COVID, which all got put on hold because it's very difficult to value a travel business during a global pandemic, right? Whereas now, coming out of that, there will be opportunities. There will be businesses that are maybe in a slightly distressed state. And if you have a long game, a long eye, um, then you could really pick up some really good businesses and then scale and grow them because the industry will come back. Um, so I think it depends, Matt, what you're trying to achieve. But social media, very, very powerful. In respect of service accommodation, which is your last question, you have to be on all of the platforms, on, on the online travel agents. So for service accommodation, Airbnb, booking, critical. But I would also say 
you know, create your own direct booking channel as well. Because, you know, your average commission you're going to be paying through through an Airbnb or booking is 12%. And that's fine. Um, sometimes it's higher. But if you can get some direct clients coming to you, build your own database, and then they start repeating with you, obviously your margins are going to be higher. So to have a balanced distribution strategy is important um, if you're in that serviced accommodation space, for sure. That's a good idea. I never heard that done before. Your own booking site for your own service accommodation so that brings me on nicely to my last question which i know you're passionate about personal brand how important is that you kind of touched on it then but how important is it because we've all had branding you've worked for some like johnny depp said mega mega brands i guess i mean it's unbelievable i don't know how you dealt with that stress and half a billion turnover one company you're looking at how many staff do you know was it well i said when i was at saga i had 1700 staff on, on my team yeah yeah. How did you handle that? You sleep at night and stuff, okay? Was it fine? <laughs> well, well, yeah, you, you just like, yeah, I mean, you, you, it's all about the people, isn't it? It doesn't matter what business you're in. It's all about your team and your people. And I think, you, you know, you have to have the right organisation structure. And, you know, I was always about, um, and still am, about empowering people. You know, so as a leader, as a leader of a business, you know, you're there to set the strategy, make investment choices, support the team, bring talented people in that know a lot more than you do empower them give them clear accountability and responsibility set them up for success and get out of their way let them do their job and i always think you have to be like a helicopter you know as a leader you need to be up here being able to sort of set the direction and, and dealing with the big clients and things like that but you need to know when to land so when there's an issue or something needs more support or care and attention, you land, you get involved, and then you take off again. Because the worst thing you can do, if you're trying to run a big business, you can't be micromanaging. And mm. I had teams globally. You know, I had, I had a team in Moscow, a team in Sao Paulo, a team in Germany, a team in Delhi. So I can only be in so many places at once. So you have to be super organized, put really good people into key positions, reward them well um, and and really let them fly and I when they need to remember you we didn't have this technology available to you back then did we so you had to be there um, yeah skype i suppose yeah a little bit a little bit i mean I, i'm always a big believer in boots on the ground as well you know so i used to be gosh when i was the md of the emerging markets for two i could be away 70 percent of the time you know, I would be flying, I'd do a, you know, a 12-hour flight over to over to Beijing. And then I'd, you know, eight-hour time difference, Monday to Friday. Then the next week, I'd be off to Sao Paulo. So, you know, when you're running those big businesses, um, it is a lifestyle choice as well. And you may have to make sacrifices, you know. But technology is a great enabler. Um, so, so, yeah, I can't remember what the original question was. Well... <laughs> I think it was just a Skype. Then let's talk about the sacrifices because entrepreneurs don't talk about that enough. And I'm a big believer it motivates people. They can relate to you. So, so operating at that kind of level, traveling the world with jet lag, away from family, friends, relationships, what are the sacrifices you've had to make to get to where you are now to enable to do what you do now? What toll did it take on yeah. you? Um, a lot, actually, at the time, um, I would say. But And this is why it's important to love what you do. 
right? Because because when you're in the corporate world, or even if as a business owner, it doesn't not about corporate world. If you if you're your own boss and you're you know it's your business and your money you're investing, it's a different type of stress. It's still incredibly stressful. So I think the first thing is you have to love what you do. Because too many times, I think people stick in a job or relationship that maybe isn't right for them, and they're not really enjoying it. And life's too short. So I was really lucky because I always loved the roles I had. I was never one of these people or sack your boss and all that business. Not at all. I loved my corporate career. But yeah, in terms of sacrifices, I mean, you know, we don't have kids, um, but Chris and I, you know, and I have a personal relationship. We'd be like ships that pass in the night sometimes. And you know, there were certainly times in our relationship where we just became disconnected and we had to kind of come back together and go, hang on a minute, you know, we need to really, you know, spend some quality time together, get back on track. So I'm lucky because Chris is is amazing. He's such an understanding partner. I could not do what I do without him, 100%. And he had a big corporate career as well. He was running travel businesses too at the time. But I think if you're, if you're passionate about what you do, you, you, you're on the same page with your partner and you've got the buy-in then of course when you have to make those sacrifices then it, you kind of can get through it but I think also making sure that you have block quality time together is is really important you know having the holidays having date night all of those things um but yeah it's stressful it's really stressful um you know, so I, I think I think you've just got to really um, dig deep and say, is this what I want to be doing with my life at this point of time? Um, is it rewarding me enough financially and, and emotionally? Is it something that I'm really passionate about? And, and actually, can it fit with my personal situation and life? And if the answer is yes, then great, crack on. Um, but you're never going to achieve greatness by playing small. You know, it comes with sacrifice. Life comes with sacrifices, doesn't it? If you want mediocre and easy, then that's different, fine. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a choice. Um, if you want the, the big job and the financial rewards and everything that comes with that, well, it's not going to come for free, is it? You're going to have to put the effort in. So I think you've just got to decide, is it something you really want? Um you know, but but the other question you answered asked me, Matt, has just come back to me about personal brand and how yeah. important is is personal brand. You know, for me, it's everything because I think whether you're a business leader, a business owner, a solopreneur, it doesn't matter what business you're in, um, how you carry yourself, you know, is so important. Um, and and actually, you know, personal brand it sort of should just be the way you are. You know, your values, how you how you do business, how you treat your team, all of that should be around you as a person and, and what you put out to the world should be consistent. And, and at the end of the day, people do business with people they know, like and trust. Exactly. And your personal brand is at the heart, isn't it? Has to be. I've got to buy from you. It's gone from the big branding days because we used to have personal branding used to be classed more like image, I think. And now, now it really is because of social media and everything. They've got to, they've got to like you. Like what? Every time you post something out, you've got to think very carefully about how that's going to be perceived, and will people buy for you? Because you're right; they're only going to buy if they know, like, and trust you. Otherwise, I move on to the next one. So, Jeanette, just finishing off, how can people find you? Because I know you mentor people now, don't you? So, well, according to the questions I was going to ask you, though, what made you get out of this big corporate role? Did you just have enough? Did you want to finally settle down? 
I was at a time in my life, Matt, where I was sort of got to my mid forties. Chris is ten years older than me, so he'd actually retired. Um, and you know, I'd been, I'd, I'd loved all of my roles, so I was never. It wasn't a position of not liking what I was doing, but I just thought, what do I want from this next stage, this next phase? You know, because I, it is stressful when you're in the, running those big corporate organisations, for sure. And I, I suppose what I really wanted was um, financial freedom, choice, flexibility, to sort of be in control of my own diary, if you like. And if I wanted to spend a third of the year travelling with Chris, I wanted to be able to do that. You can't do that if you're in a corporate, corporate job. You just can't. Um, so I think it was just the perfect time, you know, mid-40s, great corporate career behind me and I just took some time and thought what's important to me now what do I want the next phase to look like because at that age I think it's a perfect age I've just turned 50 so I'm five years on now um but I still think it's a really good time of life because you've got the knowledge the experience you're much more comfortable in your own shoes you don't suffer fools in the same way as you do when you're starting out your career but you've still got the energy and the fire in the belly to want to make an impact you know, so so it really was kind of a collision of those two things. And we decided to do more in property. And then because of my network, I was still getting, I was getting a lot of approaches from private equity houses saying, hey, we want to buy a business. Will you work with us on the deal? Will you advise us? So, you know, when you come out of one section or one job or career, never underestimate how transferable your skills are. And you don't just close the door on that and start something new. It, it sort of is an evolution. And that's sort of what happened for me, really. And yes, yeah, so now I've got my mentoring business, the advisory business, property, the podcast. And there's opportunities everywhere. There really are. Um, and I just love what I do. I love seeing people grow and flourish. It gives me a real sense of satisfaction. So, um, yeah, combination of those factors, really, Matt. But I would say if you're thinking about a change in your career, just give yourself a bit of headspace, you know, and, and do what's right for you. Don't worry about what other people think. That's just dangerous, isn't it? You know. So what your sisters think when they look at their entrepreneurial sister obsessive? I mean, I know you get you get up at like four thirty in the morning, out running, across the beaches and stuff. I mean, they, they, probably, <laughs> they probably think I'm totally bonkers. I mean, we're really different. We're really close, you know. But I, I was talking cheese. I think they, they, I think they, they're really proud of me, actually, um, and I'm really proud of them. I'm really proud of what they've achieved and the beautiful families they, they've they've got, they've created, and the kids. You know, I adore them. I'm a fan. Fabulous auntie. Um, so I think we just respect each other's differences. And at the end of the day, I'm still that working class girl from Manchester. Yeah, I think that's the question I get asked most about you. And I know we've discussed this before, is that don't Jeanette ever miss not having kids? But then you said to me before, you just make the fuss out of your, about being an auntie. You just love that part more, don't you? You just, you know. Yeah, and, and, and Chris and I made a, con a conscious choice not to. You know, but it was it, it was um yeah, God, it was it wasn't an easy decision. I agonized about it. I thought I would have kids. Um, but you know, it, it just that that wasn't the path that I took. And and I did I did a lot of soul searching and I don't regret my decision. Um, but I adore kids. I and, and I've got a wonderful family. Um, but I wouldn't have traveled the world and had the experiences and necessarily I could you can do. I should I should say, you know, there are some amazing working mums out there, and I'm full of admiration uh, for those that manage to do that. 
but you know I don't regret my choices um I might do when I'm like you know, 80, 90, sitting in my rocking chair on my own, you know, but um, I certainly wouldn't have swapped the experiences that I've had. And I feel very fortunate to have a lovely, lovely family that I'm close to, you know. So, yeah, it's good. And I think when women, they, they have this burden on them as entrepreneurs that they have to have kids and then their career ends, don't they? Which is not really the case, is it? Things no, are- you, can have, you, you can have it all. You, you can. It's just... Yeah. Um, I think it's I think we're all different. Sometimes society wants to put you in a little box. And if you don't fit into that box, people then kind of feel a bit uncomfortable. But it normally that's normally about what's going on in their life, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I used to get some some really personal questions and comments and oh, can't you have kids? And yeah. well, if I couldn't, then that's not a very nice thing for you to have said, is it? You know, you so for God's sake, stop judging people. Just take people as as they are and everyone's different we're all we're all amazing and unique aren't we so let's just embrace that is what i say well that's silly questions i was on a holiday and i i've done this a few times in my career and i should learn i said to a lady she was chatting to me and i thought she was pregnant and i said when's the baby due she said i'm not i'm not pregnant that was just honestly i could have had the ground eating me up right there but <laughs> yeah i know it's it's funny the, the way it works but yeah with the fascination with you is I suppose is you're so ambitious and so driven, aren't you? And and uh, you know what you want. And the five a.m. club, I'm right in thinking you do you do all that. That you're a big believer in getting up early and exercise every yeah. day. And you, and you yeah, go, yeah. You go to sleep early. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would say um, sometimes I burn the candle both ends. Like recently, with all the celebrations that we've had going on. But generally, I'm I'm an early bird anyway. And I think it was all those years of. of being on flight yeah but I, I i can survive on sort of five six hours sleep I, i'm kind of i can function like that so i tend to like being up before the rest of the world because i i just feel i just i don't know it's just fresh it's quiet it's time for me i get my training done i do my miracle morning my meditation and and i get my best work done early so you know i try to do the most difficult um mentally taxing jobs first thing um and then you know by sort of 11 12 o'clock you've kind of done the big work if you like and then the rest of the day can be a lot easier but normally 10 o'clock i'm in bed <laughs> chris get up early as well then with you no he he gets up a bit later so we we have a bit of a deal that <laughs> i'll sort of roll out of bed as quietly as possible and I'll come downstairs and I'll, I always put my training kit on. I leave, I leave my training kit in the other room. So I'll put my training kit on as soon as I get out of bed because then I've got no excuse to not go for a run or do something because I'm, I'm already dressed for it, right? Um, and then I'll come downstairs, I'll make my cup of tea, I'll light my candle <laughs> and I spend a bit of time on my own. So I really fiercely protect that first hour of the day and, and Chris will have a, you know, continue just having an extra hour in bed or whatever. I mean, he's not... He doesn't stay in bed particularly long, but longer than I longer than I do, and that's kind of how we how we roll, you know. So you've got to respect each other's um, different energy flows, haven't you? You know. Yeah, and it works for you now, and you made it part of your daily habits. Interesting, how you got your clothes ready, and you roll straight into it, and then you're out before you can even think twice about going back to sleep again. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. brilliant. Because you talk yourself out of it otherwise, don't you? It's raining, you know. Whereas for me, once I've got my kit on. No excuse, and I've got to go, no matter what. <laughs> and after the first five minutes, you're okay. You're in the zone, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But Jeanette, how do people find you? How do people who want to be mentored by you look you up and 
get some advice and so on. What's the best way of contacting you? Oh, go well, all over social media. So LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. It's Jeanette Linfoot. Jeanette's spelled a bit weird. I've got two N's and two T's in Jeanette, so sometimes people get that wrong. Um, I've got my podcast, Brave, Bold, Brilliant, so you can find me there. And I've got a website, Jeanette Linfoot Associates, and a YouTube channel, which is also Jeanette Linfoot. So, yeah, you can track me down anywhere. I always like to hear from people. If I can help anyone, then, you know, that's great for me. Um, that's uh, that's why I'm here, really. So, yeah, don't, don't hesitate. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. And I hopefully I'll see you face to face soon. It's about time. Yes, definitely, Matt. Let's do that. But thank you for having me on. It's been wonderful. Thanks, Jeanette.